standard issue for all women. Oh hi, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, in which the Little Mermaid discovers feminism. I shit you not. Author Louise O'Neill has written The Surface Breaks, a cracking retelling of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale that went on to become a Disney classic. You might well remember that it didn't fare brilliantly in Dunleavy Does Disney, except for with Jen, who just loves a racist crab at a banging tune. The Little Mermaid, known as Gaia in The Surface Breaks, her silencing has a lot of resonance in current attitudes towards women and also in movements such as Me Too, where women have at least attempted to shake that silence off. And Louise and I have a good old natter about all sorts of stuff around that. Just a heads up that our next gig, which is at King's Place on December the 11th, is our last of the year. And our January show is already sold out. Mm -hmm, You heard me. December is going to be smashing, though, as we have got TV talent and absolute crisp fiend Daisy Haggard, alongside incredibly funny woman slash inspirational cowboy boot wearer Tiff Stevenson. Tickets are available from our website, standardissuepodcast.com. And talking about perfect Christmas presents, mm mm-hmm, yeah, you hear what I'm saying? The Surface Breaks is a brilliant read for teens and up, and the silencing of women isn't a topic that's going away anytime soon. I read the paperback version and that is the one I'd recommend because of an extra chapter Louise wrote for its release, which we're about to hear more about now. I am joined on the phone by author Louise O'Neill. Louise, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. We are going to talk about The Surface Breaks, your feminist reimagining of The Little Mermaid aimed at young adults, but which I, a middle-aged adult, thoroughly loved. That's actually a common theme with my novels, particularly the ones that are ostensibly aimed at young adults. There always tends to be a bit of a crossover between adults and teenage readers, which I absolutely love. So did you set out deciding you wanted to write for young adults or do you just write a story and then it gets marketed a certain way? Well, my first novel, Only Ever Yours, which was published in 2014, when I was writing it, I didn't realise that I was writing a novel for young adults. You know, maybe I should have because it was set in a school and it was the main character was a 16 year old girl. But it was really when I started sending it out to agents that they thought, oh, you know, this could do well in the young adult market. But I think what's been interesting is that I suppose all of the novels have kind of straddled both YA and adults. So people will read it and say, oh, this doesn't read like a YA um, novel. But actually, I think maybe sometimes that's people who don't read a lot of YA and have a certain idea of what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. It's always been really nice to have, as I said, a crossover readership. So tell us how The Surface Breaks came about, because I know it wasn't really a book that you'd planned on writing, was it? Absolutely not, because I was in the middle of writing um, Almost Love, which was my third novel. And I was really, I should not have taken on another project because I was <laughs> really busy. <laughs> um, but um I was actually approached by Scholastic, um, which is a publisher aimed at at teens um, and children in the UK. They came to me with this idea. They were like, you know, we'd really love to see a Louise O'Neill version of The Little Mermaid, you know, a feminist retelling of the story. As I said, I really should have said no because I was so busy, but I just couldn't. And I suppose I'm 34 and I think anyone who's around my age or a little bit younger will remember I suppose, the impact that the Disney version of The Little Mermaid had on our lives when that was released. I was absolutely obsessed with this story. <laughs> and it was only as a teenager, really, that I began to think, God, this story's a little bit messed up. You know, when you look at it, it's about this young woman who literally gives up her voice she silences herself. 
she sacrifices her home, her family, all so that a man that she has never even spoken to will fall in love with her. I think I began to think, God, this story is slightly problematic, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I suppose, let go of that childhood, just love and adoration for the story. So I suppose this chance to take that message and subvert it for a new new audience was completely irresistible to me. Just in case anyone has been living under the sea, please could you give us a quick rundown <laughs> on the plot and characters? Absolutely. Of the original um, Little Mermaid or of my version? <laughs> no, let's go with your version, please. Okay. Well, it's about uh, a girl called Gaia, uh, or a mermaid called Gaia, should I say. And on her 15th birthday, she's allowed to swim to the surface um, to see the human world. Um, And when she's there, uh, she sees a very handsome young man that she falls head over heels in love with. But she knows that he'll never accept her because she's a mermaid. So she goes to the sea witch for a potion that will change her, her tail into legs but she has to give up her voice. The sea witch asks for that as a price in return. And so she's given human legs and she has to go on onto the land and it's basically make the the handsome uh, boy fall in love with her before uh, the next full moon. Otherwise, she will meet a rather uh, untimely and unpleasant fate. Yes. Obviously, you've taken aspects from both, I think. But when you went back to the original Hans Christian Andersen classic and the Disney version of The Little Mermaid, what stood out most to you? I think what I found especially interesting was how violent the original story was. I mean, the Disney version has been, yeah, I mean, the Disney version has been very sanitised. And I think that when you go back to the original fairy tale, the pain that the Little Mermaid is in when she's granted human legs and she can walk upon them on Earth, you know, it feels as if a dagger is tearing up through her legs and her thighs and her feet are bleeding. And, you know, she's just, she's in absolute agony. And I was really shocked by that because I couldn't remember. And there's also this bit at the end of the original fairy tale that feels very tacked on. Um, it's this idea about the daughters of the air and, it really feels as if someone said to Hans Christian Andersen, okay, you have to put in a moral for the children reading this book in order to induce good behaviour from them. That felt a little bit, I don't know, it just didn't feel like it gelled with the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did want to, in my version, I suppose, to really highlight that sense of violence and that sense of pain in order, I think, to just interrogate it because it was really surprising to me to think this was a story that was being read to me as a child and that was being read to countless other children you know millions around the world and when my father read my version the surface breaks he actually came to me and he said was this the original story like this and i i was i was actually quite i was interested to hear that he had also forgotten even though he had been the one who was reading it to me at bedtime that he had also forgotten i suppose how violent it was and i suppose it just goes to show i think the shift in the last 30 years around what we think is acceptable and what messages we think are acceptable uh, for children to be exposed to. Absolutely. And of course, the power of the Disney version, that's the one that I think most people remember. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it came at the... It was 1989 when it was first released. I was four at the time, and I suppose it, it really was this perfect merging of... It was the first Disney princess, I think, in 30 years. And the last one had been, I think it was Snow White in 59. And also, you know, you've got the 80s in which just the power of marketing and branding, Mm -hmm. you know, was really sort of taking hold. So I think it was just this perfect storm. Um, And the Little Mermaid, I think, imprinted herself upon just 
an entire generation um, of young girls and I'm sure many um, young boys as well. And it's been really interesting over the last few years to see how that nostalgia is manifesting itself in, you know, there's going to be the live action version of The Little Mermaid and I think there there's loads of other stories that seem to be inspired by mermaids and sea creatures um, at the moment. Our, our fascination with this story just seems to be unending. Definitely. And the Sea King in the Disney version is it's quite controlling. But in The Surface Breaks, what I thought was fascinating was obviously we focus on Gaia or the Little Mermaid silencing when she makes her deal with Sito the Sea Witch. But she's silenced mm. before she gives up her voice. Yes, I, I was very struck by that again when I when I watched the Disney version and when I reread the um, fairy tale by how patriarchal um, the society Mm -hmm. uh, The Little Mermaid lives in and how much control her father wields over them. And I really wanted to interrogate that. And so the the Sea King is a very controlling, you know, quite... He's he's weak, and I wouldn't say malevolent, but he, you know, he is... He's not, you know, he's not exactly the most positive um, influence in her life. Like, he's obsessed with his daughters. He's obsessed with their purity, with their beauty, um, you know, he sees them as bargaining chips that he can use and sort of sell them off to the highest bidder um, in order to, I think, exert more influence for himself. You know, what's really interesting, I suppose, when you look at classic fairy tales, how often the figure of the witch um, is really, I suppose, this marginalised member of society who refused to conform to the patriarchal um, norms of the culture, whether that's religion or whether that's the political state. And I really thought that was so, as I was reading a lot of their critical essays and thinking, oh, this is really, this is really interesting, the way that these stories pit women against each other and how it always depicts older women as being so jealous of younger women's, you know, uh, beauty and, and youth. And, and I thought I wanted to turn that around and that, you know, the Sea Witch and the Sea King are two very, I suppose they're they're polar opposites in a way, and the sea witch is just she's just someone who refused to conform. She wanted to live life on her own terms, and I suppose as well, what was very important to me was to reclaim the sea witch as a fat. Well, I was going to say woman, but I suppose as a as a fat uh, as a fat mermaid, um, <laughs> because I suppose when I was growing up, there was so little positive representation um, or there was little, so little diversity of body types you know it was only ever very thin very white women that were sort of portrayed as the ideals of beauty and as someone I suppose who suffered with eating disorders for most of my teenage years and most of my adult life it felt very important to me to try and negate some of that messaging and for the switch to be someone who you know, really feels very beautiful and really just loves and accepts her own body because I think I would have loved to have seen something like that when I was a teenager. Okay, okay, let's talk about Sita, the sea witch. She has the last Uh word. And to be honest, I I totally felt that chapter could have been a whole book and I would have eaten it up. She's amazing. (laughs) I have to say she's my favourite character. Yeah, Um, you can tell. Yeah, I love her. I just love her. She was just so much fun to write um, because she just... (laughs) She has no fucks to give, really. Um, and she, I think it's really interesting sometimes as a woman when you see someone who completely is just so completely empowered and really just owns their own, just their space and their power. There's something really magnetic about it. Um, and I think that's the sort of character that she is. When Scholastic were releasing the paperback 
of the surface breaks, they asked me would I write a short chapter from the sea witch's perspective. And like 10,000 words later, I was like, oh, I better stop writing now. <laughs> because as you said, it definitely could have been, um, it could have been a book. That was kind of the origin story of the sea witch. And that was also just, oh, just such a joy. I just, I, I had so much fun with her. And I think it was really, as I said, really important to me that, that she be there and that she be someone who just, fully embraces herself um, because I thought, thought it was really important for there to be one example of that, you know, one example of a woman who just loves and accepts herself because I think there's actually, that's quite rare and it's quite rare in literature and it's also quite rare in real life, I think, because women are so often conditioned to hate their bodies and to try and take up less space in the world. Really with the surface breaks, the message is to take up more space Yes. Um, and also to use your voice, you know, to, to keep using your voice, to tell your story, to speak up and to speak out. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. We did a series on Standard Issue called Dunleavy Does Disney where we revisited Disney films from a feminist angle. It did not fare well. I'm sure that won't surprise you. But <laughs> Ursula, is a, <laughs> Ursula is a really odd villain because actually she gives mm. Ariel the best advice and it's destroyed yeah. when they break the rules. She doesn't break the rules. They mm. do. So I loved that Sito has, one, the last word in the version I read, and two, ends up being this really strong matriarchal figure, not just for Gaia, but for all of the creatures under the sea. Yeah, because I suppose, you know, what's interesting with a lot of fairy tales is how often the the mother is dead or the mother is missing, you know, Mm -hmm. and and then there's this evil stepmother um, character or there's an evil witch. It's actually quite rare, I suppose, to see a a very positive relationship between a younger woman and an older woman. And it's kind of this idea that that it's only men that you can trust or it should be, you know, men that you're looking to for protection. And and I think probably because I have friends of all ages and, you know, two of my closest friends are in their 50s. So I think... I just I really disagree with that notion. And I think it's really important that women of all ages I suppose, look to each other um, for support um, and sistership, uh, uh, sisterhood, I suppose, in that way. So, yeah, so just kind of, that, that's why I suppose I did that. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Round of applause. We are totally on board with that. I'd like to touch on the fact that the surface breaks is set off the Irish coast and obviously you're from Ireland. uh, So that's not a massive surprise, Mm -hmm. but you've clearly taken some aspects of Irish history, very recent history Mm -hmm. as inspiration. So the Salkas in particular, which I am assuming are based on the girls and women of the Magdalene laundries are just heartbreaking. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I, you know, it was interesting because I was writing this book um, before the referendum, um, which to legalize abortion. So I suppose this was something that we were just, it was something I suppose that Irish feminists and Irish people uh, as a whole, this was something we were all talking about and Mm -hmm. discussing and trying, I suppose, to trying to encourage people to see the link between you know, our history um, and Ireland has uh, has had a very long history of the church and the state conspiring 
to police women's bodies and to control their sexuality. Yeah. And, and, you know, we saw that with Magdalene Laundries and the mother and baby homes where unmarried pregnant women were, were thrown into these institutions and just worked until their fingers were bleeding and their children were taken from them and either sent to America or they were adopted. And it was, it was just so tragic. And I suppose to try and see the link between that and between the Eighth Amendment, which was um, the amendment in our constitution that said that abortion was illegal. And when I came across, I was doing a lot of research for this book and reading a lot around just mythology. And um, and I came across this idea in Slavic tradition called the Rusalka. I was really taken with this idea that it was women that had died in very tragic circumstances, mm-hmm. so if they had died in childbirth or if they had died, you know, if they were jilted at the altar and they took their own lives afterwards and that they became these creatures. I really wanted to use that, but I also wanted to incorporate some of Irish history into it um, and to use that within the book. And so, yes, um, the Rusalka, many of them um, would have been uh, um, Irish women who would have gone through the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes. And, you know, there's a, a character who, uh, um, Asalka, who keeps crying for her baby because her baby has been taken away from her. So I suppose it was a way of trying to incorporate those stories and those women and everything that we were trying to achieve in the fight to repeal the Eighth Amendment, just to weave it in a very, hopefully what I felt was pretty subtle way um, throughout the narrative of the surface breaks. Oh, absolutely. It's really, really beautifully done. And just every time they were on the page, just really heartbreaking. And and Gaia coming to an understanding about them is, you know, like as... I think as teenagers, particularly teenage girls who were taken to Catholic school where, because I was at Irish Catholic school, and yeah, she learns from real life the reality of these women rather than what she's told, and it's it's really beautifully done. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably different now. I mean, I know when I was growing up, we had the internet, but it was very basic. The only messages really that you're being given are those from your family and from your school and from your classmates. Um, and I was always very lucky because my parents were very liberal and and but I I could see it within other people and their attitude to let's say something like abortion and there were other things that I definitely had a massive blind spot about until I went to university until I travelled you know that I had never considered the idea of let's say something like white privilege or um or because I grew up in such a monocultural society that that would never have been something that I would have had to have considered before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really interesting the way that I suppose, you're such a product of the environment that you grow up in. And, and then as you are exposed to different ideas and different people and their experiences and, and different cultures and different religions and, um, and different ideologies, I suppose, how much you have to really question everything that you've learned as you've been growing up and say, well, which of this do I want to keep? And what what of this? Do, do I say, no, this is not, I know now, I have enough understanding now that this is not something that is true or or something that I want to carry with me. And I think that's such a an important process. And I think we're all, you know, I, we, we're doing that no matter what age we are. You know, um, we, we keep learning, we keep growing, and this is, that's just part of our journey. Yes, and I think that is why The Surface Breaks works really well for the young adult reader 
but also works for a more grown-up reader, an adult adult reader, if you will, in that we actually lose maybe that idea that we should keep questioning. And it just reminds us that we, we don't know everything and we're going to have stuff that surprises us and challenges what we think we know. I think that's really important because I think that, you know, you see that with people's resistance at the moment to the way that like language is shifting and language has always been shifting. The way that we use language has always been changing and the world around us is, is changing and sometimes that can feel uncomfortable and sometimes that can feel confronting. It's just trying to be open to that and saying, you know, I just, I think trying to be curious and, and being open to learning and also being open to the fact that maybe you might be wrong and none of us particularly likes that, and I include myself in that, you know. But that's just, I think, part of being a human being in relationship to other human beings. It's an inevitability, you know, that you will be wrong and that you will have to change your mind, and that you'll have to learn, and you'll have to grow. And then there's other things that maybe, as I said, you will hold close and say, no, I, these are my values and I want to maintain these. And that's just part of, not, you know, not just growing up, but just growing as a person. Definitely. Louise, what are you up to at the moment? I am currently editing um, my fifth novel, which is coming out in 2020, so next year. God, 2020 sounds very much in the future, doesn't it? It sounds very like, uh, I don't know, like a science fiction novel. Yeah, yeah. dystopia. (laughs) Yeah, it does. But yeah, that's coming out next year. Does it have a name yet that we are allowed to know? Uh, It has a a name, but I'm always quite afraid until I see a cover mock-up to mention the name because they... They, they tend to change, um, but it's been it's being billed as the Virgin Suicides Meet Big Little Lies, and it is based on a true crime podcast that is kind of centering around an uh, an unresolved murder that has um, occurred uh, twenty years ago. Oh, so there you go. That sounds great. And where can people find out more about you? Well, I am currently taking a social media break. And when I say currently, it's been about a year and a half now, so I probably shouldn't say uh, too current. But um, I do have, just because I was finding it all quite overwhelming and I just wanted to take a bit of a step yeah, back. Fair enough. Um, but there is a, uh, a Louise O'Neill Facebook page um, which kind of keeps things updated. Louise O'Neill author. So I think if you... If you want to find out more, that is probably the best place to go. Louise, thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Standard Issue for All Women.